and smite come to fear him. Father, you have blessed us tremendously in this country and in this church, not just financially, but Lord, we are reminded today that for at least the last 25 years and maybe longer, this church has benefited from being able to have pastors who were able to be trained in English in the Bible so that they could teach your people faithfully week after week. And in Ethiopia, they do not have that at all. And you have blessed Anthony and Amber um, with their church. And you have blessed Anthony with training. And now you are blessing them to learn Amharic so that they can provide this for the people in Ethiopia. And God, let us not take lightly how you have blessed us. And let us not take lightly this biblical truth that the reason why you bless us is so that the nations would come to know King Jesus. I pray that you would do that in Ethiopia through Anthony and Amber and those that will follow and those that they will have a chance to impact, those that Anthony will have a chance to train and teach. And God, I pray that as you have blessed us in this church that you would Make us a blessing to them so that your blessing to us truly works so that the nations, the peoples of Ethiopia would come to fear you. Father, now as we open the Bible in our own language, remind us again of the blessing that we have and help us to be hungry. Help us not to take your word, which teaches us and gives us your son for granted. Teach us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 29 and verse 1. Two weeks ago we left off at the end of chapter 28 as Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau and God met him in the night in a dream. And then in chapter 29 and 30, Jacob continues on his journey, and we'll be reading about that in just a moment. But I want to, I want to just uh, throw out for you a phrase this morning that some of you have probably said, um, that I have said, and that you've certainly heard. The phrase is, three words, kids these days. I can't believe how kids these days behave. It's an expression that's probably as old as humanity is old. Probably Adam and Eve said that about their own boys way back in Genesis and the early chapters. Every generation of people seems to find a way to peer down their noses at the generations that come underneath them. We say things like, I don't know what's the matter with people these days. How can they think like that? We would have never have done that, which usually isn't the case. And I admit that I'm one of the people that says that. I'm a part of this club. And maybe there's not, maybe that's not without a bit of reason because there are alarming things happening in our world today. But I want to submit to you that this morning, this morning that this phrase, this attitude, this kids these days attitude is not such a healthy way to look at the world. The author of Ecclesiastes, in fact, says to us these words, do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? 
For it is not of wisdom that you ask this. Don't go around saying everything was so much better when we were younger. We were so much better. Ecclesiastes says, hey, if you say that, that's not a wise thing to say. And I want to just give you three reasons why I think he says that. And I hope that they will lead into what we're going to say from Genesis this morning. If we're always looking down our noses at the generations below us, first of all, let's remember that we're the ones that raised them. So if kids these days are so bad, their parents must have really been rotten. That's one reason why it's not so wise to look down your nose at other people. Secondly, when we look down our nose at others, whether it's the generations that are younger than us or just other people in general, it's spiritual pride, isn't it? We are so much better than they. When in point of fact, any difference that exists between us and other people is by the grace of God. Let us look at all humankind and ourselves first and say, people are terrible. Look how good God is and look how much we sin against Him. Thirdly, when we have a kids these days attitude, we overlook the fact that since Genesis chapter 3, the whole world has been desperately wicked. Every generation, your generation, my generation, and CJ's generation, all of our generations have come into the world desperately wicked. We were conceived in iniquity, we were born in sin, and we are desperately in need of the Savior, no matter how old or young we may be. No generation is good, not even one. And it's this third observation that I think is so clearly on display in Genesis chapter 29 and Genesis chapter 30. The passage we're about to read is about as ugly as it gets in the Bible. This is a horrible story. And as I began to study it this week, it was very discouraging because there seemed to be almost nothing of redeeming value in the story of Jacob and his wives. The very fact that we're going to be talking about wives with an S on the end of it lets you know what kind of muddy waters we're about to be wading into. This is an ugly situation. And so if you were ever tempted to think that family dysfunction just came onto the scene in the late 20th century, think again. This is the picture of a dysfunctional family of depraved human beings. And so I want us to spend about the first half to two-thirds of our time this morning just walking through Genesis 29 and the first part of chapter 30 and observing what is so wrong with this picture. And I want us not to just observe what's wrong with the picture, but to hold the picture up like a mirror in front of our faces so that we might see what's really wrong with us as well because we are not all that different from Jacob and his wives. So we'll begin with chapter 29, verses 1 through 8. And I just want you in these verses to notice Jacob's pride. Jacob's pride. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it. For from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered 
and they roll the stone from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Now let's just recall the background briefly. Back in chapter 27, we read that Jacob had listened to his deceiving, conniving mother. He had tricked his aging father and he had stolen his brother's blessing. He's running for his life when we catch up to him in chapter 29. And you would think, based on what he has just done, that he would have come into this place called Haran, limping with his tail between his legs, embarrassed for the way that he had behaved toward his family. That's not how he comes in. Instead, in verse 7, we find that this new kid on the block, this is his first day in town, is beginning already to boss everyone around. You may not have noticed it when we read it the first time, but read verse 7 again. These men are professional shepherds. They're sitting out there waiting for everyone to arrive so that they can water the sheep. And Jacob comes up to them, new guy in town, and says, Hey, it's still high day. It's not the time for livestock to be gathered. Water the sheep and go pasture them. In other words, what are you doing? You guys don't know what you're doing. You should just water the sheep and get out of here. Why are you sitting around the well wasting time? That's the, the thrust of what Jacob is saying. And I find it quite odd that on his first day in town, with the background that he has coming from behind him, that he's telling professional shepherds whom he doesn't know how to do their jobs. It's amazing when you think about it. It's even stranger when you remember that we read that Jacob was a bit of a mama's boy. Esau was the one who went out and worked in the fields. Jacob stayed close to home and cooked soup. So if anybody in the family would have known about shepherding, it probably wouldn't have been Jacob. But in spite of his probable ignorance about shepherding, in spite of the fact that he has great baggage on his shoulders that he should be pointing to himself and not others, in spite of the fact that he's brand new in town, we find Jacob showing tremendous self-assertiveness in this passage. He met God in chapter 28, but he hadn't yet been humbled by God. And that's important for us. Some of us have met God and we've not been humbled by God. Many of us, maybe. I just ask you, holding up the mirror in front of your face this morning, are you a self-assertive person? Pushy? Bossy? The Bible says to be slow to speak and quick to listen, and many of us are quick to speak and slow to listen. You get bent out of shape when you don't get your way. Well, here's a reminder from the story of Jacob that we ought not to be that way. In view of our sins, we ought to be humbled and broken to the dust. Brashness and bravado aren't as winsome as the movies make them out to be. And if we're able to see them so, this so clearly in others, we ought to remember that others, and more importantly God, sees our pride too. And we ought to lay it down. God is opposed to the proud. So when you think of Jacob, remember his self-assertiveness and hold the mirror in front of your own face. Are you prideful? Notice greed then in verses 9 through 27. The greed of Jacob's future father-in-law, Laban. While he was still, Jacob, while he was still speaking with him, Rachel came out with his father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother, showing off. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. So when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. 
Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. So far, so good. Then Jacob said to Laban, here's his self-assertiveness again, Give me my wife, for my time is completed that I may go into her. Laban gathered all, three, all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. His daughter Leah. Get that. He got, took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? But Laban said, It is not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years." This section begins well, doesn't it? It begins with a promise of what we thought was going to be a beautiful love story. The long lost nephew has come home and been found by his relatives. There is celebration and there is romance. Jacob and Rachel apparently fall in love with one another. And penniless as Jacob is, he says, I'm willing to serve your dad for seven years to pay off the dowry that I can't afford to pay. And he says, it'll be just like a day. And it was just like a day for him because he so looked forward to marrying this beautiful young girl. But it was all a dirty trick, wasn't it? Laban had no intention of giving Rachel to Jacob. No intention. So he lied to his nephew. He, in effect, stole seven years of wages from his nephew. He broke his youngest daughter's heart. And he married off his oldest daughter, like a piece of meat to a man who did not love her. Jacob ruined, I mean, Laban ruined everyone's life in this story. The question is why? Why did he do it? Well, he gives us an excuse in verse 26. It's not the practice in our place to marry off the younger before the firstborn, and no doubt he was telling the truth there. No doubt that it was the custom that the older daughter would get married before the younger daughter, but he could have told Jacob that up front, couldn't he? Why didn't he tell Jacob up front? that they couldn't marry off Rachel before Leah. Why did he put his daughters through this agony and why did he deceive Jacob? One word, cash. Laban wanted cash. Laban was a man consumed with greed. And he looked at the situation and he saw an opportunity. Jacob really loves Rachel. Let me think. Maybe... If I can somehow convince him to marry Leah by accident, then I can get seven years of work for him from him. But he really loves Rachel, and so he'll love her so much that he'll work another seven years, and I'll get seven years for free. This is amazing. Plus, I'll get rid of my daughters, and they cost a lot of money anyway. He wanted cash. He wanted all the profit 
that he didn't earn. And so he lied, and so he stole, and so he wrecked his daughter's lives, all for money. This is the first time, this isn't the first time that we see this happening with Laban. You remember, Laban was the brother of Rebekah, who is Jacob's mother. And back in chapter 4, 24, Abraham sent his servant to Laban's family to find a wife for Isaac. He said, go find a wife for Isaac. And so he went and he met Laban and he met Rebekah and he met their dad, Bethuel. Do you remember what he said? you remember what happened there? Well, the servant met Rebekah at the well and he put some jewelry on her and showed that he had a lot of money, dowry, gifts with him. And so they started going back to to Bethuel and Laban's place. And here's what chapter 24, verses 30 and 31 says about Laban's response to all this. When he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, he said, come in, blessed of the Lord. When he saw the ring and the bracelets, he said, this is a rich man. We're going to get something out of him if we can marry Rebecca off to his master. So. Laban seems always to have had his eyes on the green. He was greedy. So are some of us. Some of us always have our eyes on getting just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, whether it's money or possessions, the things money can buy. Some of us always want to get a little bit more. And some of us may have been willing or are willing to sell out our children, just like Laban did, so that we can put in more hours at work and have a bigger family income. Some of us may be willing to rob God so that we can redo our basement or go on an exotic vacation. Some of us are willing to cut corners and cheat our bosses so that we can get a little bit more pocket change. Some of us are greedy. I just ask you, we hold up the mirror this morning, do you see Laban in the mirror? Are you covetous? Are you covetous? Filled with greed. If you are, then learn from Laban's failure and learn from the fallout that we're about to read. We read on in verses 27 all the way down through chapter 30, verse 8, about Rachel. Rachel was jealous and Rachel had no faith in the Lord. Complete the week of this one, verse 27, and we will give you the other one also for the service which you shall serve me for another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went in to Rachel also, and indeed he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. She named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. Now, 
When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, here's my maid Bilhah, go into her that she may bear on my knees that through her I too may have children. So he gave, so she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. There are multiple grotesque things happening in verses 1 through 8. But the first and the most obvious is Rachel's exceeding jealousy toward her sister. Jealousy is never a pretty thing, isn't it? Is it? It's the fruit of an ungrateful heart. God, you haven't given me what I deserve. You haven't given me what's coming to, to me. So I'm jealous of someone else who has it. Jealousy is also the seed of idolatry. If you're jealous, you're going to become an idol worshiper. If I don't have X, I will die. Verse 1, give me children or else I die. Children became an idol for Rachel. Now, jealousy is a little more difficult to spot in our culture because we are so wealthy. We look around at what other people have and we say, I want your watch. I want a watch like he has. We don't have to steal to get it. Most of us have enough money to where if we want the watch, we can figure out a way to get the watch. Or we have a credit card. And so we don't have the money, but we still have a way to get the watch. So it's sometimes hard to pinpoint jealousy in our culture because we don't have to stay jealous for more than five minutes because we can get whatever we want. So, but we're still jealous, aren't we? And so what we need to do is we need to examine our hearts when we buy things. That's important. Anytime you buy something, you need to ask, why am I buying this? Do I have a, I've got to have this or I won't be happy attitude? Do I have a, she has it and I don't have it attitude? Or can I buy this to the glory of God and to enjoy God through it? It's an important question. Jealousy is obvious, though, even in our culture, with things that money cannot buy. She has a baby and I don't. He has the girl that I wanted. He has the career that I always dreamed of and that I worked for and that I deserve. She can eat whatever she likes and never gain a pound. There's all sorts of things that money can't buy, right? And we become jealous towards other people, and jealousy towards other people leads to bitterness, doesn't it? Just like it did for Rachel. She became bitter towards her sister. And when we become bitter, we stop to think, stop thinking clearly. And when we stop thinking clearly, we start to do God's thinking for him. And that's exactly what we find Rachel Doing. Rachel knew what Jacob told her in verse 2. Jacob said, Listen, your childbirth is in God's hands. Rachel knew that. But she'd stopped thinking clearly because she was so angry, because she was so jealous. And so in verse 3, she did something that she was sure to regret probably for the rest of her life. She gave her husband, whom she had fallen, chapter 29, deeply in love with, to another woman. Amazing the links that we'll go to 
when we begin with jealousy. She fancied herself wiser than God. She didn't trust God. So she came up with her own little plan. Some of us are riding the same disastrous train of events this morning. God doesn't seem to be giving us what we want. God doesn't seem to be giving us what everyone else has. So we become jealous and we've become bitter and we stop thinking clearly and we started trying to do God's thinking for him and we've come up with our own little plan. Some of us are in the midst of things and some of us may be on the verge of things that if we would just stop to think for half a minute, we would be so embarrassed about what we're doing or thinking or planning to do. So ashamed. And if we stopped to think for half a minute, we'd realize that we're going to regret what we're doing or thinking or about to do for the rest of our lives. So can I just trust you this morning based on the negative example of Rachel? Trust God. Your life is in God's hands. God cares for you as a father. God cares for you better than a father cares for his children. Trust God and put aside jealousy and covetousness lest you fall into the disaster of Rachel. One more thing before we go on from these verses. I want you to notice Jacob's sexual immorality. As bad as Rachel's jealousy was and as wicked as her plan was to give her maid to Jacob, remember that Jacob didn't have to go along with it, did he? Jacob didn't have to go into bed with Rachel's maid. And for Jacob, if he would have just thought about it for half a minute, he would have fled from this woman as though from a burning building. I've got to get out of here. I can't go into this woman. What are you thinking? But he didn't do that. And he brought more and more disaster on his family. We won't spend much time on this this morning, except to say that nothing but disaster can come from sexual immorality. Jacob had trouble with his family the rest of his life, and much of his trouble stemmed back to this decision in chapter 30. Take that to heart, some of you young people who are tending to compromise in your relationships with the opposite sex. Disaster awaits you. Take that to heart, some of you men who are toying with pornography in the secret places of your office or in the side room of your house. Sexual immorality leads to nothing but disaster. Take that to heart, some of you men and women who, to boost your ego, are flirting with other people at work or allowing them to do so with you. It's going to lead to ruin. Learn from Jacob. Sexual immorality always leads to disaster. And we see that now unfolding from bad to worse as we read verses 9 through 13. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher, she wasn't happy. She was bitter and jealous like her sister. But the reason why she came up with this crafty little plan to give her maid to Jacob is because her sister had already done it and Jacob had already fallen for it. So Jacob's initial sin is getting him into more trouble. But I want you to notice Leah here. We see in Leah just what we saw in Rachel, jealousy, cunning, faithlessness, We see in Jacob sexual immorality again going along like a blind sheep with his wife's plan. But I want to point something else out to you that we didn't take notice of with Rachel, but that was there. We didn't pause to think about the effect that Rachel and Leah's actions had on their maids. 
Bilhah, and Zilpah. The modern technical word for what's happening here is sexual abuse. That's what these women were doing to these slave girls. And as long as Rachel and Leah got what they wanted, it didn't really matter how the servant girls felt about it. See what's happening? Listen, I'm jealous of my sister. I can't have children. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you in to sleep with a man who doesn't love you. And when you have a child, I'm going to take that child from you and make it my own. That's what they did. That's what some of us do. It's very easy to mistreat people who are under your supervision, isn't it? It's easy to mistreat your employees or your wife or your children. It's easy to mistreat people that you hire to work for you. Because you're in charge. And you have an agenda. And it's easy to forget that everyone else is a human being too. As long as your agenda gets done, then that's what counts. And so it's very easy to abuse, to mistreat, to take advantage of, to be unfair toward other people who are working underneath you or less powerful than you. And if you think it out, you'll realize that you tend toward this, especially if you're in charge of people. Are you misusing someone in order to get what you want? Someone who's less powerful than you? Maybe someone at school who thinks that you're really special and cool and so you treat them like dirt in order to get them to build you up. Are you taking advantage of other people that are underneath your authority? Either maybe underpaying them or overworking them or abusing them verbally? There are all sorts of ways that we act completely contrary to the example of our Lord who bent down and washed his disciples' feet. Something to think about as you go back into your work and school this week. It's very easy to abuse those who are less powerful than we. We've seen a lot of sin. Let's see just a little bit more in verses 14 through 24. We're going to see spite, greed, and irresponsibility as if things hadn't been bad enough already. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went out and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother, Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband and would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord give me another son. I don't want to take a lot of time to to rehash this mandrake fiasco. Uh, Mandrakes were plants that these people thought had um, powers to allure people sexually. And so that's why the the exchange here. I just want you to notice a few things about these uh, sinful sisters before we go on. First, Leah's spite, spiteful towards her sister, lashing out at her in verse 15. You took my husband. 
And now you're trying to take my mandrakes. Rachel now does what her father is in the business of doing, selling sex. I tell you what, I'll let you have Jacob tonight if you just give me some of those mandrakes. Pawning off her husband like a basket, or like a, a, a piece of meat for a basket of mandrakes. And Jacob, again, comes on the stage like the bumbling, idiotic husbands that seem to be the stock characters in modern sitcoms. He's just a goofball, and his family's falling apart, and he doesn't even seem to notice. So he just goes right along with the plan again. It's one big, ugly scene. And that's a statement that we could use to describe all of chapters 29 and 30. I told you at the beginning, this is a hard passage to study and to read. The whole story is ugly. Pride, greed, deceit, jealousy, sexual immorality, spite, abuse, sexual abuse, selfishness, and a total ignorance of God's word and his wisdom, all within one nuclear family. This is the picture of dysfunction. But when we get down to it this morning, and when we hold the mirror up in our faces this morning, we realize that the exact same sins that they are committing are the sins that we're tempted to commit every single day, aren't they? Every single day we are tempted to be prideful and greedy and jealous and spiteful and immoral and selfish and abusive. Every day. Perhaps your life isn't going south all at once like it seemed Jacob's family was. But all of us live every single day with the bacteria of all of these full-blown sins festering in our souls, just waiting to destroy us. And what we really have this morning is a room full of people who are not all that different from Jacob and Laban and Leah and Rachel. All of us are sinners. And we need to be honest about that. And you know what was the most heinous sin of all in this story? Do you know what sin opened the floodgates for all these other sins? The fact that except when he was giving them what they wanted, Jacob and Laban and Leah and Rachel seemed to have absolutely no use for God. Except when God was giving them what they wanted, Jacob, Laban, Leah, and Rachel had no use for God. Go back and read it yourself. They never speak of God except in relation to getting something from him. Never once in this story. That'll be your homework today to find out if that's true. The only thing God seemed to be good for in this story is to meet their selfish desires. That's amazing. And that's a sin that we can all relate to, isn't it? Some of us only pray when we're in trouble. Some of us only pray for ourselves. Some of us only obey God because we think we're going to get something out of Him that we want. Some of us only praise and worship God when He gives us what we want. We may come in here week after week and sing the songs, but it's all routine. The only time we're really happy is when God gives us stuff. So all of us have a tendency, like these characters, to have no use for God unless he's giving us what we want. And we need to be cautious. This is the most heinous sin of all. The failure to acknowledge God, the failure to love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength. That's the greatest sin. That's the greatest commandment, and it's the greatest 
sin. And as we said last week, none of us loves God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength for even five minutes. So, God is largely absent from the consciences of Jacob and his family in this story. But he's not absent from the story. God is not absent from this story and he's not absent from our lives. Even if we ignore God, marginalize God, overlook God, and reject God, God is still there. And God is still God. And I want us to finish our thoughts this morning by going back through and just pointing out what God was doing in this story. It's not obvious because the characters never acknowledge him, but God is there. What is God doing in this story? And what is God trying to say to us about himself through this ugly story? What can we say about God from Genesis 29 and 30? Three things. Number one, God sees when other people sin against us. This isn't the main thing, but this is a thing that we see about God. God sees when other people sin against us. Look at chapter 29, verse 31 again. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. The Lord saw that Leah was unloved. Isn't that a mercy? Isn't that a kindness of the Lord? Isn't it hope-giving to remember That if you are unloved or mistreated, God sees that too, just like he saw it with Leah. Yes, other people are going to sin against you. People in this room, people in your own family are going to hurt you in ways that you can't even imagine yet. Leah didn't ask for her dad to sell her like a prostitute, but he did. And some of you haven't asked to be treated the way that maybe you've been treated, to be dealt the pain that you've been dealt with. But you need to remember that God sees And God knows, and if you belong to Christ, God promises to work all things, even other sins against you for your good and for his glory. Romans 8, 28. So number one, remember that God sees when others sin against you. Number two, and much more important and much more obvious, at least in this story, is this. God is opposed to sin. God hates sin. And he's opposed to it. It may not seem so at first glance when reading this story. Because God kept giving these women children. God kept blessing Jacob. Eventually, as you read on in Genesis, you find that Jacob became a very successful, very wealthy man. So it may not seem like God was opposed to sin in this story. It may seem like God is completely ignoring Jacob's sins. But that's not the case. Just look a little bit closer at the story. Remember why Jacob was fleeing to this far-off country in the first place? Because he had deceived his brother and stolen his brother's blessing. And he ran away thinking he was going to get away with that. And isn't it interesting that the particular sin that Laban committed against Jacob, the particular sin that threw this whole story for a loop, was that Laban deceived and stole from Jacob. Jacob was a stealer and a deceiver, and now Jacob is stolen from and deceived. He is reaping exactly what he sowed in disastrous proportions. God is opposed to sin, and God was chastising Jacob in this story severely with all the family chaos that ensued. God hates sin, and God will oppose our sin as well. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. 
If you're sowing greed and pride and jealousy and selfishness and sexual abuse or verbal abuse or sexual immorality this morning, be not deceived. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And Jacob got it firsthand. So God is opposed to sin. Now put two and two together. All the ingredients for a Genesis 29 kind of meltdown are stored up in our hearts. We are sinners. And God is opposed to sin. God is not mocked. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. We are sinners. God is opposed to sin. You know what that means? That means people like us are in big, big trouble. We are in deep trouble. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against men who repress the truth in their unrighteousness. And all of us do that every day. All of us know the truth and choose to disobey. We are sinners and God is opposed to sin. Now this isn't religious motivational language. I'm not just trying to hype you up to do better. This is the bare naked truth. We are in deep trouble with God. That's the truth. Thank God it's not the only truth in the Bible. And thank God it's not the only truth in this passage. Thank God this isn't the last point in the sermon. Here's the last point in the sermon. Number three. Though God is opposed to sinners, God, sin, God longs to save sinners. That's really what this story is about. It's an ugly story, but it's a story about God's deep desire to save sinners. How's this story about God's desire to save sinners, you ask? Well, just ask yourself, why didn't God just wipe Jacob and his family soap opera right off the face of the earth in Genesis chapters 29 and 30? Why did God continue to bless them? Well, the answer is because God had promised to bless them. God had promised to bless Jacob. Jacob, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why God was good to them. And you may ask another question. Well, why did God promise to bless a wretch like Jacob? Why did he bless Jacob? Certainly not because Jacob deserved it. So why did God promise, promise to bless Jacob? Well, the answer to that is because Jacob happened to be a part of God's big, big plan. The plan. Jacob was a part of the plan. And what is the plan? What was God's big plan? Well, God's big plan from Genesis chapter 1 and before the Bible ever began, was to send his son into the world to live a sinless life, to die a sacrificial death, and to be risen on the third day so that sinners might be saved and bring glory to God who deserves it. That's God's big plan. And God's big plan was through his son to save men from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. So we're a part of that plan, even though we're not living in Genesis 29. So are the people in Ethiopia. So are the people in Nigeria. God had a big plan. But in order to send his son, God was preparing a family, Jacob's family, into whose hands he would give his commandments and his law and into whose family tree would be born the Messiah. It was so important that God bless Jacob because Jacob's family tree was so important. And Jacob's family tree was so important because Jacob's family were the forebears of Jesus, the Savior. 
That's why God continued to bless them in spite of themselves. God blessed them so that he could send Jesus to us through them. Does that astonish you this morning? We've said this before from Genesis. Way back in Genesis chapters 29 and 30, God was working and planning so that in 2006, you and I and the peoples at the ends of the earth would have the Savior. This is a story about God's deep desire to save sinners. He desires to save us so much that he puts up with and even redirects our egregious rebellion against him to work for his plan and for our good. God was gracious to them so that through Jesus he might be gracious to us. That's good news. That's good news for those of us who this morning have come to realize that we live in the same cesspool that Jacob arose from. If we have been listening carefully this morning, if we have looked in the mirror this morning, we've seen our reflection either in the face of Jacob or Laban or Rachel or Leah or maybe more than one of them. And if we've been listening carefully and we know our Bibles, we know that we deserve God's indignation and God's wrath. And we know that we need a Savior. And this story is just another reminder that God in His rich mercy planned and has completed the plan to send His Son, the Savior, Jesus, into the world. Our Father has given us, through this wicked family, the one who is completely free from all their moral stains and all of ours. God has given us the one who has been tempted in every way just like we are and never, ever sinned. God has been pleased to give us the one who obeyed his Father 100%, 100% of the time. He's given us the one who is therefore sinless and able to stand in our place at the bar of God's judgment. He has given us the one who is able to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He has given us Jesus so that we sing how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Yeah, that's right. That's how much God loves sinners. That's the lesson of Genesis 29 and 30. That's the lesson of the whole Bible. God is opposed to sin. But God so loves sinners that he sent his one and only son to die to rescue them and give them eternal life. Do you know that God? God that loves like that. Have you embraced that Savior, Jesus? And if not, would you not? If not, would you not today? I want to pray that we would. God, our God, blesses us so that the nation...